Welcome to episode 127 of the Sentientism Podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. The Sentientism Worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to using evidence and reason, and by having compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I speak with Chaitanya Talrenger. Chaitanya is Assistant Professor at the Tata Institute of Social Sciences in the Centre for Regulatory Policy and Governance. He has a PhD in economics. Chaitanya's research interests include economic development strategies in the global south, structural change, economic development and regulatory policy, urban economics and non-anthropocentric strategies and alternatives to anthropocentric value systems in progress and conservation, including food systems research, maybe also in the emerging field of sentientist economics. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 126 others. Don't forget to work through our back catalogue if you've just found us. Uh, Every person who reviews and rates or shares our podcast with a friend helps us nudge more people towards more compassionate, rational thinking. Thanks so much if you've already done that. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info. We can sign up for email updates or just search for sentientism on your favorite social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested in these ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, Chitania. How are you? Hi, Jamie. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very good. Very good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join this series of sentientist conversations. We've had a few online chats and we also had a previous Zoom meeting with a couple of uh, your other contacts to have a fascinating discussion about some of the things we'll delve into today. But it's great to have a one-on-one conversation. And I first, I think, came across you when I saw the article you wrote with Sanchita, which I found fascinating in the leaflet, which again covered many of today's topics about religion, the caste system, uh, animal ethics, and how those things link together in the Indian context. So yeah, it's great to get the chance to talk. Um, And you know this already, but I guess these conversations are about what I think of as the most important philosophical questions, what's real and how should we think about what to believe? And just as importantly, our ethics, what matters and who matters? Um, And I have an obvious bias because I'm trying to popularise and develop this really simple pluralistic worldview called sentientism, which suggests we should take a naturalistic approach using evidence and reason when working out what to believe. And when it comes to compassion and moral consideration, every sentient being warrants our compassion, you know, all suffering or flourishing ultimately should matter. Um, But I'm talking to people in these conversations who have a dazzling variety of different views. Some of them like sentientism, some of them uh, virulently disagree. So it would be great to understand your own philosophical journey and how you think about these big questions now. Uh, But before we get to those, how would you introduce yourself and your work? Uh, Thank you for having me here, Jamie. I was uh, really looking forward to this conversation and as you remember, we have been planning this for a very long time. Uh, as far as my introduction is concerned, uh, so I'm currently working as an assistant professor of economics at Center for Regulatory Policy and Governance uh, at Tata Institute of Social Sciences, Mumbai. Uh, I've been working here for one year. Uh, otherwise, I've been born and brought up in Delhi. Uh, and. Uh, My entire education has been in economics. I was an undergraduate student in economics at Delhi University. And then I went for my master's in economics at Gokhale Institute of Politics and Economics, Pune. And then I completed my PhD in economics from South Asian University. And uh, I have always been intrigued by social sciences and development uh, as a discipline 
uh, as a way to understand how the society is organized and how we behave and how uh, we can make changes in the society which uh, which can be socially more desirable right so these are things which have intrigued me uh, over my journey both as a student and now uh, as a teacher and uh, i would love to discuss how my thoughts have evolved over time and how i uh, try to work uh, towards uh, articulating my thoughts and uh, working on things i care about brilliant thank you yeah and i think that will flow through the conversation because you know we'll start talking about what's real we'll talk about what matters and then uh, when we're thinking about the future, the social sciences seem to be the heart of the problem much more often than technical issues. It's more often about human social norms and psychology and systems and economics and politics. Uh, those are often the, the dark heart of the problem. So, yeah, it'll be fascinating to explore. Um, so let's start with the first of those very big philosophical questions. What's real? So for many of my guests, this is a story about whether they grew up originally in maybe a more naturalistic, scientifically minded, maybe agnostic or atheist sort of context, family and friends and society, or one that was more spiritual, religious, mystical, maybe in some sense, and how that side of their thinking about, you know, reality and what to believe and what's real has changed over time, if it has. So I'd love to hear your story of um, yeah. Yeah, how yeah. your thinking shifted over time, if it has. Yeah, yeah. So uh, as far as my upbringing is concerned, uh, I was born uh, into a family which, uh, where, wherein uh, there was a sense of uh, religiousness involved. Like my parents, uh, so we have a temple at home. So it's a Hindu family. But culturally, uh, I belong to uh, a Sindhi family. So Sindhi, Sindhis uh, are a group of people who uh, belong to a part now which is in Pakistan. Yeah. So, uh, so when India got partitioned, uh, these are the people who stayed in a province or state called Sindh. And some of the people migrated uh, to India. So this is the group of people uh, where my family uh, belongs to. So, uh, so we have a temple at my house and my parents uh, have been religious in that sense. Uh, and uh, like they they follow uh, typical uh, social and cultural norms that surround um, uh, Hindu uh, family, as we say uh, a Hindu family is. So that's how um, that's that's the environment wherein I was born. Uh, but at the same time, um, conversations uh, with my father. Uh, it was revealed that uh, his, I mean, his approach to life in general not was not always very religious. So he also considered himself uh, what we would understand as someone who is atheistic. So he wouldn't believe in um, uh, the festivals or rituals that people, um, you know, follow. Uh, and I mean, in India, typically people who belong to what we call as upper caste Hindus, they get involved in a lot of these rituals and uh, they, they sort of keep, uh, keep faith in, keep faith in uh, some superhuman entities and uh, maybe some godmen also at, yeah. Uh, yeah, you'll find that. 
so he he didn't believe in all those things and uh, in one of my conversations not very long ago he told me that uh, there came a point in my life i was very distressed uh, and uh, because he had a life of a certain struggle in the sense that uh, he he had humble beginnings he had lost his father at a young age and he had several sisters and typically since the society is gendered in a way so uh, i mean the females are not expected to work so he was expected to uh, run the family and get yeah. his sisters married etc from the age of 15 16 so he sort of head of, of the household uh, at 15 yeah yeah at a very young age he uh, had to uh, you know fulfill a lot of responsibilities and there was household debt etc so he he sort of tried to with his a uh, couple of young younger brothers together they all tried to you know run the family uh, etc and in this process he thought that everything that we do is determined by our own hard work so your own destiny you can carve out your own destiny by working hard etc so uh, but but then over the years when he had this sort of a life so there came a point where he was uh, at a point where he he said that i i felt like giving up because it was too much for me to handle uh, and then at that point he said that i uh, sort of thought that i need an external sort of an entity who i can you know just go back to and you know uh, i can uh, sort of surrender my uh stress anxieties etc so from that point he became a believer not in uh, the ritualistic aspects of religion but he started became a, becoming a religious person in terms of his faith in uh, god so he believed that there is a god and uh, uh, he believes in that and uh, my mother has been sort of uh always Uh, has been a religious person i mean not uh, not actively thinking about it but has been religious in terms of how uh, her family environment was and i mean absorbed her own way of life according to the social environment yeah. as such yeah. so that's the sort of family i was born into so that played a lot of role in uh, how, how i was uh growing up and seeing things around me so and what did you part- and what did what did you think as a child you know when you're having these conversations with your parents because i assume you know you would have absorbed the same context as they did in terms of practices and rituals and what other people around you believed was it was it did it, you find it an interesting topic as a child or was it a background thing you know when you talked about or atheism with your father was that uh, so no the conversation regarding atheism um, came came about because uh, he thought that i personally since i don't believe uh, in god and i don't believe in the idea of uh, religion being a vehicle uh, to something that we call god and i trying to you know question all these things that happen around us uh given the larger politics also around us and religion is also uh has become or has always been a tool to sort of marginalize different sections of the society so uh 
so this sort of made me a lot of uh, made me uncomfortable with this entire idea of uh, using faith uh, faith as a way of life faith in god uh, using religion etc so this this sort of these sort of things bothered bothered me and this is the from, context of from, the con- from and from what age how early did you start to think like yeah. this so this 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 has not been uh, i mean uh, very old um, as such i think uh, this was very recent in my life uh, when when i i mean when i entered higher education when oh, i, I see. was okay, yeah. yeah yeah when i was maybe uh, after maybe my masters when i had completed my masters course and uh, i was going towards my phd i think even after even after a long time when i was into my phd maybe i was uh, thinking more deeply about these things when i was i mean when you are doing your research uh, what you are taught is to question things right yeah and <laughs> so so i think that made me question things about myself also right so i think that process got intertwined because for a large part of my life my thinking was autonomous because i was also following uh, the things that uh, i was conditioned with right so uh, i was not necessarily thinking of questioning uh, what questioning the way i think myself right and this is important because uh, the way you think has real impact uh, on the society itself right because that shapes the reality around us the way we think so i think uh, when i got introduced to new ideas is when uh, i realized that there are different ways of thinking uh, and since in my family uh, there was no uh, such background of uh, pursuing education and critical thinking as such so it took me a long time to realize this aspect that you know this is uh, this is not there is i mean th- there is not one way of life there are several ways of living life and one has an agency to sort of change uh, the way you think although there are frictions there are struggles involved with that uh, but i mean uh, the thing that you can do this uh, happened to me while i was introduced to uh, different ways of thinking yeah so uh, once you're in an environment where critical thinking was expected in the norm it just became natural for you to apply that critical thinking to thoughts about your religious background and beliefs as well and as you went through that process um you mentioned already that you saw how some religions at some points can become you know a political tool or even a form of oppression so that's one I guess theme of your thinking. Um, for other of my guests, they've also challenged some of the more personal ethics that they see flowing through some forms of their religion. So, you know, m- most religions suffer from a variety of these different problems. But whether it's sexism, racism, anti-Semitism, other forms of religious bigotry, homophobia, you know, whatever it is, there's some sort of personal ethics thing that. Drive some challenge as well, um, and then there's just the sort of straightforward evidence and reason stuff of going, you know, uh, the facts don't seem to line up. The evidence doesn't seem strong. There are many other religions that say contradicting things. This seems to be a sort of socially contingent thing that you know, if I've been brought up in 
a different country, I'd probably have a different religion. Does that so so there's a sort of facts and evidence thing, there's a personal ethics thing, and then there's a sort of systemic, you know, political dynamic as well. What was there a balance between those things for you, or was it more one thing or another that drove your critical thinking? I think uh for me, uh, all of these uh things uh, seem to have been coming together right uh, so when when i when i realized that uh, you know some things that i had internalized growing up also are not just about my personal ethics themselves they also have larger implications so yeah uh, i mean when you when you uh, just just question that you cannot escape questioning the things that are happening around you rather uh i mean not just not just your personal ethics but the political uh, political system around you and uh, uh, the other things are all interrelated and there are interlinkages and uh, and the way i think about things is that i like to look at the interlinkages of several things so i think probably also because of the way i think i think all of these things uh sort of started to come together for me yeah so how would you describe your worldview now would you would you say it is naturalistic and atheistic or um uh, would you describe it in a different way and um i should ask simpler questions sorry but we often focus in these conversations on religion because it's so obviously the heart of this sort of naturalism versus supernaturalism choice but that that's not the only topic right there are all sorts of other ways you might have leave some space open for the supernatural. So how would you describe your epistemology and your worldview now? Okay. So uh for me I think uh it's it's uh it's a very hard task to sort of grasp reality uh in itself. Have a pin down a certain way of uh way of thinking that could capture what yeah. uh reality exactly is and i rather uh, i i think we we can have devices of language to help us sort of understand the system around us so that you know we are not confused or depressed with with what's <laughs> uh, happening around us but but i think uh, that you know uh, i would say that i i would rather try to you know uh analyze things around me as they are uh and try to find ways uh to sort of understand them rather than you know uh assuming certain things uh, based on uh, how i am conditioned to think so there are certain ways of conditioning which are not um, visible to me right now right yeah so which might become visible to me later or if someone points them out to me Yeah. so i think my approach is to be open that way to uh, several approaches or i would say pluralistic in that sense yeah so i would write like to bring several approaches uh, as much as i can to understand the reality around me yeah. and that would be uh, my my approach to sort of if 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 you would say epistemologic approach to uh understanding what's the meaning of things around me yeah right? i love it i love what... it yeah because <laughs> yeah. it yeah. strikes me is that there's there's almost sort of two character caricatured extremes here one is to be so humble 
that we almost give up on knowing anything, right? And that seems a little silly to me. And also, I'm not sure how you'd organize your life if you really thought we could know nothing about the world, which is why it's a caricature, I guess. The other extreme is to be, you know, either super dogmatic or so confident you understand reality because of human hubris, really, that we have some sort of inbuilt right, whether God-given or naturalistic, that we have to have the capacity to understand everything. And actually, we do already because we've done the experiments or because I have a dogmatic belief. And it does seem to me that there is a really healthy middle ground that I think you've described where you do have humility. You know, we're just, you know, another animal on this planet that evolved for very different purposes, trying to find our way through. But we can find out things that are useful, but we should be open-minded and humble at the same yeah. time. So, yeah, it's a nice yeah. balance. Yeah. And I think uh, I think also uh, it's, it's also about, uh, you know, trying to understand that uh, now that we are living, right, and we have developed a certain kind of understanding of things around us to, uh, to know that, you know, the way we think, also impacts other people who are living around us and non-humans living around us. So, I mean, the thing is that you cannot separate, uh, separate, or you cannot escape the thing that everything that also happens around us affects you because you're able to sense it. You have certain senses around you. So, yeah. uh, in a way, uh, it's it it would be uh, very difficult to close my senses. Uh, consciously if if i mean sometimes maybe people have to do that i don't know but to the extent i can i would want to understand the reality around me even if it's it's very hard to do that yeah yeah well i think that's great approach we'll just you know keep trying we won't have any illusions about whether we'll be successful or not but you know it's fun to keep trying and i like the point you make about relationships and sort of connections as well because there is a sense that some people think of scientific thinking is sort of crushing the fun and the life and the richness out of things in a desperate attempt to understand it so we break things down into tiny pieces and we separate them off and we examine them and you know sometimes that can be useful to do but um so then some people will then go back to a more mystical or supernatural worldview to say things like everything is connected we're all part of one whole and so on but i think you can say that from a completely naturalistic point of view as well it's just a physical fact that we are all connected we are all part of you know, at right. least one universe. I don't see why you have to abandon that very rich sense of interdependency and connection and relationship and even right. oneness. That's totally right. consistent with a naturalistic way of thinking as well. Right, right. And that's, I think, that's the kind of thinking uh, that have I have been able to develop by now. And uh, I think that, that, that has helped me in a way, uh, in the sense that, you know, uh that you know when you accept the fact that you you know cannot really know everything around you there's also some sense of uh, calmness around that also because it tells you that you are limited in that sense yeah. it allows you to know your limits so when you when you draw those when when you draw that or rather when you accept that there are limits to you uh, you wouldn't or you try to not force yourself to go beyond that. That's very important, I think. Sometimes people don't realize that uh, our, our, we, we, we are constrained uh, by our limits to understand things. So it's, it's rather also a fact that we are limited in that yeah. sense. 
and within that constraint uh, i think uh, i mean it it can be an endeavor to know whatever uh, we can yeah yeah that's, i agree yeah. i agree well that's that's been fascinating thank you it's been really interesting to hear your journey and your story so far um the next question we come on to equally important is that of ethics you know what matters and then also who matters um so again it'll be really interesting to hear your story about how that side of your thinking has shifted because i'm assuming that as you grew up uh the way you thought about right and wrong and good and bad was again somewhat sort of absorbed from your family and i'd be interested to know how much uh you know hinduism influenced that was you know religious thinking part of your ethics and then how has that shifted as you've moved away from a religious way of thinking you know how would you ground your ethics now so again you can tell the story however you like uh about yeah. yeah so i think growing up uh, uh i so i was sort of uh, sensitive in the sense that sen- i had a sense of sensitivity to the things and um things when i say things humans non humans everything that's uh, around us i had a sense of sensitivity towards it but i obviously i was not someone who had who possessed some sort of critical thinking at uh, that stage to understand what is right uh, what is wrong but uh, and the idea of right and wrong was clearly since since our family families in india typically are patriarchal or throughout the world many many systems are patriarchal so this this idea of ethics was flowing uh, from uh, my father to me where uh, he explained to us what's the right thing to do and what's the wrong thing to do and for a very long time i was internalizing those ideas and i i have not completely discarded all those ideas some of them have also helped me uh, to to read because that have helped me retain the sensitivity i have towards uh the things around me things as in everything around me yeah so so i and what, think and what would you summarize as you know what what the, what were the main things he told you if you can uh, imagine sitting down with your father then and saying you know what is right and wrong you know how should we behave what would the main themes be yeah so i mean uh for him it was just uh typical ideas ar- around uh, you know uh not cheating working hard i mean they were they, those were things that he thought were right things yeah. to do uh and maybe also sort of uh i mean for example when uh, so these these are also things many uh, uh many parents do uh, with their children growing up so for example he would he would he would take us for a drive and he would stop at the red light and he would tell us that this is the right thing to do while others are uh, uh, jumping the red light things like these he used to yeah. uh, tell us and i was internalizing those things but sometimes i also uh, saw when i saw things uh, around me i thought that okay maybe people i mean pe- people around me don't always do the right things so i was very confused that what is this uh, right and wrong but I, what i understood uh, what what i understood more was the things that surrounded uh, sensitivity in 
general for example uh, so i i mean i i thought i'll bring this up at some point but i think this this could be the uh, could be the point where i could uh, talk about is uh, about uh, about animals itself so for example uh, so sindhis typically are non vegetarian people yeah. they consume meat and uh, my father also used to relish meat uh, so he he changed or uh, changed his uh, way of eating uh, before i was born uh, and he 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 said he told me once that i always felt that it was not the right thing to do uh, uh, i when i went to the slaughterhouse when i used to come back i did not feel comfortable but i used to love it love eating meat so uh, so so and did he, was, in that context did he was was he actually seeing the animals being killed at the slaughterhouse yeah, yeah, he, yeah. he he was concerned about the uh, killing of animals for yeah. uh, and, our, unlike, and unlike many people around the world he actually saw he saw it right yeah <laughs> as opposed to he, it being hidden yeah 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 so he he continued to consume uh, meat but he sort of uh, was uncomfortable about it um, and he he said i tried to question this this aspect of me so so while he was so he sh- so this is this is something that he he communicated to me uh, but but the story about uh, this is that while i was growing up so every family gathering around us uh, used to offer meat because uh, other other people did not follow this line of thinking right yeah. my father had changed and he wasn't doing it but this this made me sort of uh, confused because everyone around me was relishing something which is good to eat nice to eat and my father was telling me this is uh, not the right thing to do i was thinking i mean my cousins etc all used to sort of uh, tell me that you're missing out on something maybe my uncles or aunts uh, and all so i used to sort of uh, come back home and we used to have a fight so maybe i was 4 5 years old so we used to have a fight about it and we used to say no uh, it's not the right thing to do uh, and then uh, there were times when i used to uh, go outside uh in those gatherings when my father was not there so i would not consume meat but i would still be upset about it because yeah. my father had uh just told me to not uh consume meat so uh so one one day he actually so one one day he act, so one day what happened was that i forced him uh to tell me that why does he think that this is not the right thing to do so he he said okay let's do one thing we'll do an exercise and after that maybe if you want i'll myself offer meat to you you can eat it okay and uh, we went uh, uh, to a place where people purchase meat from uh, there were slaughter houses and then he told me that this is uh, where it comes from and if you would be willing to uh, consume meat and Uh, when i was looking at that uh, place around me i don't know why uh, in some way i was not convinced that i would 
consume meat because it it was just uh, not something i uh, i felt very comfortable about and it sort of made me feel very sensitive uh, towards uh, towards this entire idea so after that i i mean i never questioned uh, this thing so uh, so as i was telling you the idea of sensitivity has driven me in different aspects of life to understand the reality around me so yeah. my actions and people's actions around us uh, and this has helped me question not just um, our interaction with uh, non humans but also humans right so uh, wherein my father uh, was not actively telling me things about our society which i got introduced to as i was reading up interacting with other people around me so uh, that in that sense it wasn't a linear path of uh, knowing things just directly from my father but uh, the thing is that there were some things that uh, that i could hold on to uh, from my upbringing also so it's not necessary that maybe he was not aware of several things uh, around him while forming his ethics but uh, i could sort of take some from him also and uh, also develop my own uh, ethics of thinking about things around me yeah thank you I mean your dad sounds your father sounds like quite a visionary thinker you know becoming an atheist and then thinking seriously about animal ethics is impressive <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah uh, and so yeah. so it sounds like if someone was to say to you you know what's the foundation of your ethics the, the word you keep saying is sensitivity it's a and that clearly links quite closely to this idea of sentience because i guess the the sensitivity is a sensitivity to the experiences of others so do you find sentience a useful concept when thinking about moral scope is that how you think of it now because i mean in, in sort of common language we talk about animal and you know human and non-human animals as a as a sort of shorthand really for the beings that we think can feel but i guess that i i like zeroing in on this idea of sentience because it is the capacity to flourish or suffer to have experiences and therefore that's you know where i think we should at least put our arms around that group do you think that's a useful concept does that reflect what you mean when you talk about sensitivity or is there something different going on uh the thing is that i i for me i think it's uh, this idea where we try to uh, sort of uh, expand or draw boundaries uh, of our moral scope is practically very important but i would look at it uh, uh in a different way in the sense that it is it is first of all accepting the fact that it is very hard to uh draw something like a moral scope as such because uh it is being defined by us right yeah. and uh, the other distinction is that uh the other distinction is that whether we are talking about uh an individual's morals or we are talking about a moral community so when you say moral scope it should be something like uh ideas which which we all come and agree to together would define the moral scope of an entire society yeah. or a collective right so when when i think when we think uh, of a collective uh, the idea of scope becomes very important so it it shouldn't be just about my morals uh, but 
how do we extend those morals around us or how do we draw, draw boundaries uh, but but at the same time i think uh, the one thing that makes it more difficult is that uh, when when we are deciding uh, on the moral scope we are actually uh, sort of valuing things uh, and when we are valuing things uh based on our ideas of how we value things in a certain way even if we are not including uh certain things into that boundary of value uh we are somehow putting them outside outside that boundary and we don't really know if they matter or not yeah. but i think is that the question whether they there, yeah yeah there is a danger but i mean uh also we need to realize the idea of limitation like we are uh, limited to answer this question i think uh, i think uh, there's an example uh, i i'll i'd like to share that one of my students um, is is an animal rescuer right uh, he he uh, rescues snakes he rescues um, birds all sorts of animals so one of the nights i was visiting the campus just for a walk the university campus and he he, he had rescued uh, the baby of a bird it was a very small uh, creature and uh, seemed to be in need of help right so he rescued uh, the baby and we were talking about it and i heard that uh, they it would be to, to for the baby to survive that baby needs to be put in a protected environment and needs to be fed with food right uh, and uh, in that process uh, uh, a person suggested that it would be good to serve worms to the baby so uh, and that's that somehow uh, caught my attention that you know uh, so we we are driven by an act of compassion or sensitivity and that is leading us to choose a form of life over another form of life uh, maybe sentientism can be uh, in in a way useful for us to reduce uh, uh, the harm we inflict in in many ways the harm we inflict is unknown to us because we exist we have we live in a civilization but we also recognize certain harms that we actively pursue right so i think some harms that we can choose not to cause but there are sort of very deep um, uh, very simple scenarios that happen around us which throw up deep questions that yeah. how do we sort of answer yeah. this idea of moral scope where we are trying to protect someone while while we do that we are actually choosing to uh, harm someone else and uh, is sentientism then uh, the boundary which we draw yeah so one question that that uh uh came to my mind so i think uh it's very important uh to think of these 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 areas uh where where i mean confusions might arise or yeah. there are certain implications of uh, how we draw the boundaries but i think uh that nevertheless uh you know our approach matters i mean drawing yeah. boundaries and, is is and important I, I, and i think that's i think that's it because 
the idea behind sentientism is it doesn't really answer the question. You know, it doesn't it doesn't resolve yeah. all of these moral trade offs at all. Yeah. Partly because you could be a sentientist and grant moral consideration to all sentient beings, but take a very different ethical approach. You could have a feminist care ethic, or you could have a deontological approach, or a utilitarian approach, or right. uh, or something else. Right. So so there's lots yeah. of different ways of trading off, but you could also differ about your level of confidence in which entities are sentient. So you might find a sentientist who says, you know, I've, I've read the scientific research and I'm very confident those worms are not sentient. So this is a really easy choice, but you might find another sentientist who says, well, hold on, but I've read a different set of research and I have a different yeah. level of risk tolerance and prudence. You know, I, I'm not so sure they're not sentient and this becomes a much more difficult trade-off. So sentientism doesn't answer that. I think you're right. It's, it is just a pluralistic you know, baseline, if you like, an approach, a platform for starting to think about these things. And it does, I think it resolves some, you know, really obvious choices, like the choices we most people around the world make in animal farming, for example. I think it makes that pretty clear. But then there are many others where there are really genuinely difficult trade-offs and you, we should have humility about our ability to solve those answers. And I think we need a pluralism both about you know, the facts of the matter, which things are sentient, which aren't, which aren't, is sentient binary or graded or multidimensional or something else. Right. Um, but also about our ethics, you know, are we, are we really getting this right? And what's the risk if we're getting it wrong? That humility needs to flow through. Yeah. Yeah. So I think at the boundary, at the boundary, we should, we should. So I think to sort of understand this, we should, we should have a scale along which we, we can all be clear that, okay, uh, there, 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 there is some clarity to us, and I'll repeat myself that you know we'll be limited by the way our minds think about things, and our in, own intelligence and our own scientific procedures proving or disproving things. And uh, I mean, obviously, uh, it is it is uh, only in evolution in our thinking that has allowed us to uh, do this, and things might unfold in a different way but i mean there are certain things which we could agree to and at the boundary this there will be these sort of moral trade-offs that will occur and uh when when we are sort of trying to decide these boundaries we will face a lot of confusions but uh we can be confident about certain things that we are actively pursuing and it's time we could uh, start questioning them where where we know actively that we are doing these things and accepting the fact that we are we we will have limitations while we are drawing these boundaries nevertheless we uh, sort of don't we shouldn't be using these moral trade-offs as excuses to not having a moral scope right so i think that is my approach to thinking about uh, these things. I love that. And I think, I think it works in so many different ways. One is, you know, we can absolutely have really difficult discussions about where is the boundary of sentience, if there even is one, it probably is fuzzy, you know, so there are Twitter battles going on as I speak about oysters, for example, at the moment, in the vegan Twitter sphere, Twitter sphere, and we could talk about sea sponges, or you could talk about the very simplest invertebrates or the worms, right? So we can, we can fight about that. And, you know, I think we should just follow a naturalistic humble approach and a prudent approach and trying to work it through honestly but those debates have no bearing on our confidence that you know humans pigs reptiles sheep cats dogs you know the list goes on are extremely likely to be sentient beings right the boundary conditions should not stop us 
being confident about the things we really have loads of evidence about. And the same is true, I think, in the in the ethical sense, right? You can always come up with really difficult boundary level thought experiments where we could argue for hours over what's the right thing to do. But we shouldn't let that distract us from the really obvious cases where there's a you know horrible moral wrong being done or there's a you know a really obvious win-win opportunity we can at least agree on those and then yes carve out 10 percent of our time to argue about the boundary cases but the core case is staring us in the face and and that's often a you know a frustration in online conversations and other conversations is quite often when people don't want to face the core case the real big problem they will love to talk about the boundaries and use that as an excuse so i th- i love the way you put that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So I think, so, yeah. Well, so I was going to, if you, there was more you wanted to add to that, go ahead. No, no. I was no, thinking no. of moving us on to the final, the final question. So we've answered what's real and we've answered who and what matters. So that's, you know, most of philosophy fixed in an hour, which, right. isn't, which isn't bad going. Um, but the next question is, again, almost as difficult, which is how do we then go on to think about the future? Um, so you can be as utopian as you like, or you can be as pragmatic as you like. Um, I'm interested particularly about the context in India and how you see positive change happening. And that could be both in the epistemological space, you know, in terms of ideas about, um, you know, the emerging strength of Hindu nationalism versus the more sort of Indian traditional secularism, whether it's to do with things in the social sphere and the intrahuman relations, um, whether that's caste, race, sex, gender, you know, those other classical topics of inequity and discrimination, or whether it's in the non-human animal space as well, where, again, there's a very different cultural context and a religious context around how we think about non-human animals that means it's a very different social context for thinking about making things better for non-humans than it is in other places in the world. So that's too much space, but you can pick and choose where you want to go and thinking about, you know, how do you think about a better future and how we can make Yeah. So, I mean, uh, in our heads, we'll, we'd like to be as utopian as we can be, right? But then this, again, this idea of being constrained keeps coming back to us. And that, that I think uh, for a the long time- The inconvenience of the real world. Yeah. Yeah, inconvenience <laughs> of the real way. world. I, we, we will not be able to maybe resolve that very soon or I don't know uh, myself personally what's what what would be the case like on that front. Uh, uh, so but having said that, uh, we, we have a lot of practical challenges and we, sh- we need to be very cognizant of that and the realities around us while we try to uh, make a world which is uh, more kind and compassionate. Uh, so I think that that could be the driving principles. But then uh, who do we include uh, in that spe- spectrum of you know, uh, kindness and compassion will become important. So coming back to uh, India and uh, talking about animals as such. So I mean, uh, one good thing is that there's a law university in India, in Hyderabad, which offers a course on animal law, which talks about uh, critical animal studies, which I got to know about very recently. So, I mean, there are developments happening on this front, 
uh, in some way uh, which is which is good but uh, if you if you look at uh, the entire political spectrum or the indian society as such uh, the conversation around is, is around this issue uh, is is very marginalized it's it's not uh, in the mainstream if you talk about uh, the right wing uh in india which is dominated by the uh hindutva based polit- political party uh, which is the bjp so there i think uh the the idea uh, or the talk about animals is not coming from uh, a concern towards animals or no- non humans as such the politics is uh uh based on the idea of religion and its divisive and it's also caste based right so uh talking about animals becomes very difficult difficult in that sense what happens is that uh since in hinduism uh cow is so considered a holy animal so that becomes a justification for uh using cow products right milk butter uh exacta which are actually extensively used in uh, the rituals of uh hindu people like they would uh, they would go to temples with milk and offer milk to the gods right and that is considered pure so the idea of purity and impurity is embedded in hinduism where they would even considered certain animal species as impure and certain animal species as pure certain humans as pure and certain humans as impure so that's how the caste system works right yeah so, so it's more about purity than it is compassion yeah so that that is not there and then uh, then the thing is that uh, the entire thing about protecting cows in india uh, becomes a device to subjugate uh, people who, who consume uh, cow meat uh and surprisingly india is the largest buffalo beef exporter so buffalo is not uh revered by hindus as and i mean it's uh, she she or he or they they have not uh sort of received that holy stature in hinduism so they are not protected but the idea of protection itself is not real protection right uh it's it's a political device to sort of uh uh marginalized sections of the indian society who consume uh cow meat right so uh then talking about animal rights as such from the perspective in which we are discussing becomes very difficult in uh, if you are talking to someone who uh, aligns with the hindutva right wing which is a very uh dominant section of our society or a section of a society which dominates uh, our politics in this country on the other hand the sections which are uh, marginalized which is the dalits adivasis and bahujans and muslims who uh, who actually consume uh, animal products even hindus consume animal products it's just that there is a section of hindus who consider themselves much more pure who would be vegetarians but would uh, largely consume uh, dairy products uh, uh, and very heavily so so uh, i mean for for the 
other sections which are affected by this politics who are marginalized for them food becomes a tool of resistance towards this uh politics which tries to marginalize them sometimes even there are episodes which are reported where uh muslims or dalits were uh killed for consuming uh cow meat because hindus consider uh cow as uh, uh holy yeah so uh, so in that sense uh there 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 are there are there are then forces that uh sort of resist by consuming more beef or cow meat so yeah. uh, in that sense it becomes very difficult to sort of bring to light the dogma uh, of uh, hindu politics and uh, this idea of resistance where there could be other modes of resistance so when we talk about uh, animals themselves we can actually talk about the fact that uh, hinduism or hindu vegetarianism doesn't actually talk about animal rights so why to uh, sort of resist using that uh, sort of sort of why to uh, make animals the tools of resistance themselves which sort of uh, you know fuels again this this idea that hindus protect animals when they don't yeah. actually do yeah. that yeah. so i think uh, in that sense uh, one has to realize that Uh, this entire idea which we are talking about this idea of naturalistic way uh, in which we can uh, understand uh, the reality around us or the moral scope around us has to come out of this space of religion and try to see who is being harmed in this process obviously the dominant politics is harming the marginalized humans uh, and also the non humans and uh, i mean even in the social science spaces it it is not easy to uh, talk about non humans it is because that uh, because that the concern concerns around social justice around uh, humans so uh, they are the concerns for non humans are seen as something of a binary as if uh if we talk about non humans we are snatching the right away from marginalized sections uh the right to livelihood and like the right to eat uh what they want to eat so yeah. That yeah. we are snatching away that choice from them so uh, not sort of going into the nuances of the fact that these two are not binary things if we try to break things down we can actually think about humans and non humans together when we talk about uh, social justice as such so, and that, so this, that makes it really difficult because on the one hand you can be telling a story that is clearly trying to resist non human animal oppression but others will attack you because it feels like you're by doing that oppressing a disadvantaged groups of humans so right. yeah and this in its fascinating dynamic because we we see echoes of this in lots of cultures around the world where the idea of non-human animals and particularly animal farming and animal products has become such a sort of cultural tool and a symbol that yeah as ever the you know the actual victims often get forgotten and it's just back to being a human story about which group wants what yeah it's it's tough and this reminds me of a uh, of a movie uh a scene from a movie actually so there's a movie called jay jay bhim okay it's in uh, tamil language i think so uh 
that movie depicts uh, how the dominant sections uh, uh, of our society marginalize actually marginalize uh, uh, indigenous human beings uh, so in that the plot is such that uh, people uh, who who are called adivasis who stay uh, who who stay in certain natural environments uh, and are indigenous people uh, and how uh, they there are ways in which they are marginalized so that movie depicts that very beautifully and there's a scene where the that caught my attention so uh, so there the movie starts where there's uh, there's a landlord uh, who has a large agricultural land and there are adivasis who work uh, uh, on that land for him and then uh, they they sort of live outside the village in a, a very sort of uh, meager sort of living yeah. in very small small houses etc and uh, in one of the scenes what happens is that uh, uh, there's a person who is catching rats in the farm in the farm uh, an adivasi who works on that land so who's who's catching rats uh to uh to eat those rats because maybe for them it 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 is their food right so yeah because they're living uh, in subsistence conditions and yeah subsistence conditions so there's a conversation between him and his wife so while he's uh catching rats um uh, there there's a method which with they were doing that uh and then uh, they end up also catching a baby of of uh, a rat and then uh the wife of that person uh, uh, tells him to leave the baby uh, because i mean she understands that killing the baby is wrong maybe you can uh, eat the uh, eat the the adult uh, rats right so then he he also says that uh, eating eating rats actually is helpful uh, in the way that it it prevents snakes from coming to the uh to the farmland right and this person is a snake rescuer also so what i'm trying to bring out is the complexity of the of these relationships between humans and animals that play out and there's a politics around it so yeah in the larger plot what happens is that uh you know this person is later uh charged false falsely by policeman so what happens is that this person uh, is called the person who used to catch the the rats and who used to work on the farm is called uh, to the landlord's house to you know uh, remove a snake who had entered their house right so he comes and does that and after some time uh, it's noticed that the jewelry in the house has been stolen right so then uh, i mean the police catches this person and alleges that you are the one who uh, uh, who 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 has who has the jewelry and you have stolen it and this person never comes back so it's a story of his wife trying to find justice and a lawyer who helps us and shows how this this discrimination happens uh, these people are sort of marginalized because they do not have access to the social capital and social resources Yeah. and turns out towards the end that the policeman had actually killed uh, these these people 
because of their identity and they were the ones who had stolen the jewelry the police themselves yeah so yeah. so this was the entire plot of that movie so what i'm trying to bring out is that people don't even have access to these ideas not necessarily that they don't think about non humans but even pe- people themselves are living in situations where they do not have uh, political power or decision making power right yeah and, and they're also that, the subject of their own oppressions and right and, and problems right, in that right. network yeah 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 so and at the same time it's it it would be very uh, inappropriate to think that they are not capable of thinking about non humans yeah right yeah so people absolutely. right so i think that's also very important to sort of understand these complexities of the indian society where uh, there are people who have developed certain ways of life because of the way our society is structured not necessarily where they had uh, they had the space to think about what's right or wrong or what what is moral what's the right thing to do yeah so i think that way i think uh, we we really uh, will we have a long way to go in trying to sort of understand the conversations about uh, what is uh, our moral scope in that sense that will have to be intersectional when we think about uh, talking about ideas of justice uh, humans and non humans in india trying to understand these complexities uh, that are involved because what happens is that typically uh, the vegan movement uh, maybe also around the world focuses a lot about personal changes yeah uh, uh, which revolve around giving up meat uh, giving up dairy which obviously is important i think all of us who understand this would do that but also to realize the fact that that is not the thing being going vegan is one thing one part of this thing but yeah uh, trying to understand the larger dynamics around social justice becomes very important to sort of uh, materialize or actualize what we are trying to do right uh, so i think that is very important uh, when when we think about practical changes in india yeah. as such the movement to include people who can talk about uh, non humans but who do, do not belong to the mainstream uh, and you know spreading a larger conversations about how we think about non humans why we love dogs or cats or why we don't uh, allow that to pigs or hens or uh, other other species who we uh, exploit uh, where we don't necessarily have to uh, exploit them right so there are these questions that that we need to actively Uh, find answers to and maybe also keep raising these questions very actively yeah thank you all right and it just it just makes the picture much richer and i think we need to understand it because there is a real danger of us going from what i think is a simple clear ethical conclusion to assume that the answer is simple and it, that the world just isn't like that so in a sense that that focus on personal behavior you can imagine there being some consistency because you know most humans everywhere on the planet have at least some degree of compassion for non-human animals right. so right. so i think almost everybody has that which you could work on and clearly you can communicate about ethics and environment 
and uh, land use and water use and zoonotic disease and human health. And so you could use that same portfolio of arguments, but it would just, it just needs to be done in a very different context in India, in the global South and different cultures, because everywhere has, um, you know, very different cultural contexts and, and different people have different levels of capacity and power and influence and, are in situations where their choices are often very restricted. So you have to recognize that context when we're talking about individual choice, of course, right? Um, and while sentientism is explicitly naturalistic, I, I want to find ways where I can help people who are also have a supernatural and religious worldview find their way to express yeah. the compassion that flows through religions to non-human animals as well. So and I've had a conversation with people like Lisa Kemmerer who actually think that we've got a better chance of persuading religious people to be more compassionate for non-human animals than we do for you know atheists and agnostics. But so so that let's put the personal behavior change to one side. When you're thinking about the systemic changes, you know, what would you like to see? And what do you think is a, a promising ways of looking at systemic changes, whether that's in you know social change generally, politics, your own field of economics? You know, what sort of if we're if we're going to put the personal change to one side for a moment. What are the systemic levers that you think are productive to pull in a place like India? Right, right. So I think uh, systemic changes, I think, would be very important because, uh, again, uh, individuals uh, sort of are conditions conditioned in a certain way and they uh, internalize a lot of things uh, and they get hab- habituated to it. And they are not very... Uh, always, always very keen on actively questioning what's uh, what what they are doing. But when the system around them changes uh, in a certain way, it allows them to do that. For example, uh, when I uh, when I get outside my house every day and travel to the university, so uh, I I see I I see two things. Uh, one is the there, there is there is a slaughterhouse just near my house where it's 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 a live slaughterhouse i mean uh, people by by um, i mean hens are slaughtered there itself and people uh, i mean people consume them and it's very normal for them to do that so it's normalized that way yeah. so uh, the hens are caged and i would see that every day right so uh, so and then when i cross that there is a woman selling uh, fish, right? Fish and other other beings from the sea. So, can I have a conversation? Uh, go and have a conversation with them and talk about uh, about non-humans. So, there will be a lot of resistance, and there's a lot of cultural uh, and economic things that are associated with the life that these people are living. Yeah, so they, for them, I mean, and their their livelihoods depend on doing yeah. what they're doing, right? And there are a large amount of people who do the same thing every day. Uh, it's obviously one may not know who among these people think about non-humans and who does not actively do that uh, because they, they have been habituated to a certain way of life. And now this is the only way that supports their uh, way of life. Uh, and then thinking about the system in that sense that uh, people who would stop consuming uh, animals as such uh, would affect the livelihoods of these people. So this is a larger question. Someone 
framing an economic policy would ask uh, yeah. ask us so i think uh, the conversation should move towards ways in which we can transition so then the fields of psychology sociology politics economics we should have tools from all these fields to understand the implications and the practical challenges that might emerge in this transition the fact that we need to transition is not the question the the question is that how can we sort of transition uh, to make people believe that there there are ways in which livelihoods can be generated for example for farming seaweed can also be an alternative way to farm uh, at the sea rather than fish right yeah. so i'm not saying i'm not generalizing this this is just an example is the thing that can we think of ways in which we can create more livelihoods without causing harm to non humans and in a way that people <laughs> who derive their livelihoods from uh, from these industries which involve uh, commodifying animals uh, can we prevent resistance from that there will be resistance right yeah so uh, so i think these are the questions that should become a part of our uh, discussions in uh, both the knowledge sector and the policy uh dimension which obviously uh doesn't seem to be happening because people sort of are dismissive of this idea itself because of the economic and social impacts of decoupling or uh transitioning towards a life uh yeah. which would involve removing non humans uh from our consumption and production patterns but i think uh i mean that is that is to do that it is very important to be cognizant of the nuances uh that are there and then sort of try to use language as a tool to develop questions sometimes we answer sometimes it, the questions that we are raising are not uh, right i think for example what about the livelihoods for example when you talk about transitioning from non plastic from plastic to a non plastic industry there also livelihoods will be lost Yeah. nevertheless we want to transition right so i think we need to ask questions in a way that you know how can we make transitions while understanding what the cost of these transitions would be like uh, and factoring that in in our policy making as such uh, when we think about the future so it has to be intersectional that in that sense not uh, not driven by an idea of consumerism when veganism is seen uh, as an idea of what we can consume uh, rather than how we can transition to a society which cares about non humans as well yeah so yeah. i think that's, that's fascinating thank you and i think this idea of transition is common around the world you know everywhere needs a transition but it has a radically different nature in different places so you know in the uk and the us for example um the far, the the animal farming communities have enormous political power and a very strong voice but they're actually a very small number of people but they there's still a real transition challenge that we you know we need to help those farmers and the people in the supply chain transition across but it's a completely different order of magnitude of challenge in a place like india where a much higher proportion of the population is actually hands on involved in in these industries at different scales so it's still a transition challenge but it's a very different s- 
style of challenge. And there are, there are of course, you know, there, there are sort of market purists who will say, well, if the consumers go vegan, then the market will follow and find the solution to those things. Um, but regardless of your, you know, economic stance, I think there are so many examples around the world of unmanaged transitions and unsupported transitions where, right. you know, industries that have either just proved to be inefficient or environmentally damaging or supplanted have just been allowed to disappear at enormous cost to the people involved in them. So there, there has to be some more intelligent thinking about, you know, exactly how can, how can we, as you say, manage the transition and support people in a transition to a better solution. And it feels like it needs, you know, thousands of different transition paths, you know, it isn't as simple as shut your ranch down and open up an oat milk factory, right? It's not, it's just not that simple. You need thousands of different transition paths, all that need to be supported in different ways. But, and, and how optimistic do you feel about, you know, is, is that a conversation you think that you can have productively in India? Is it something that will start to get traction in sort of economic and political forums? You know, I had a fascinating conversation with Nicola Tresh recently about, you know, whether we need this new field of sentientist economics that recognizes the value of non-human animals as well. You know, do, you, do you think that it's possible to get traction in some of these transition ideas? I don't know about uh, how much traction will it uh, receive for, for one reason is that uh, there, have, there have to be incentives for people to sort of think about uh, all these things. And generally our system is based on incentives. People who even come uh, for higher education they are driven by the idea of getting better jobs, right? Not all, even people work, uh, coming to social science institutes uh, for uh, delving into these critical issues not, are not always driven by uh, the incentives to work towards changing the society as such. So uh, having said that, I think uh, the fact that we are communicating about this today and we are talking about this issue when I, I'm sitting here in India and uh, uh, this, this, these complexity, complexities that I was trying to bring out through this conversation uh, is going to go out there. So I think uh, there, I mean, one can, one can just be optimistic about it rather than think that whether it will happen or not, because that should yeah. not stop me from doing this because if I won't be, thinking that this wouldn't make any changes i wouldn't be doing it at all so i think this 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 thought has crossed my mind several times in life that you know it's very hard to convince people it's hard to talk about these things and even now uh, uh, i mean even when people understand that there are people who do not consume uh, products made using animals uh, people don't really know what what this is about so even even in places of uh, higher learning people are oblivious to this idea so that sometimes uh, makes me think how hard this journey is going to be but then i my thing is that i shouldn't stop from you know talking about it writing about it and you know given that i have a certain knowledge set and uh, that has been into economics and social sciences why not I use that uh, in this direction as well. So whenever I get the opportunity, I do that. So I'll keep doing that. And coming back to this idea of sentient uh, economics. So I think we can develop ways in which we can think of 
the biosphere itself so it, what economics does is is that it treats economics uh, economics treats the firms individuals government etc uh, as a system which is uh, which is not related to the biosphere as if it exists in isolation so rather it's it's a subsystem of a total system so people talk about economic growth uh, so economic growth depends on the biosphere so which which is finite and yeah. economic it's just growth, a resource to be tapped yeah yeah and then the economic growth is talking about something infinite happening infinitely so is is that something uh, that's possible so i think uh, economics itself has to sort of change the ways in which uh, it talks about uh, its surroundings so economics generally is dominated by what is called neoclassical economics uh, wherein uh, this idea of uh, individualism and market fundamentalism market solving uh, all the problems because you know individuals when they serve their interests in the best manner uh, and and you know they compete with each other there is there is a massive cooperation through the market that's happening and leading to outcomes in which everyone is happy right so this is this is the sort of training that economics starts with uh and which is not really economics it's a certain kind of economics which is yeah. called neoclassical and the economics ultimate, and the ultimate driver is only human interests and needs yeah, yeah. so i think there is not just this i so when we talk about sentient economics i think uh economics itself has to uh go through a fundamental change in which uh it it as a discipline looks at uh its surroundings like the surroundings around us looking at us as humans rather than as agents maximizing or yeah. optimizing our satisfaction or optimizing our profit uh, because there are things that we do uh, are not about uh, maximizing our satisfaction like for example kindness or compassion uh, so basically our our end is not just to consume and produce we 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 interact we yeah, talk every every human has a much richer web of values but yeah. only some of them get res, you know yeah. reflected so, through traditional economics yeah. yeah yeah maybe sentientism can help us further this uh this idea of changing the way we study economics uh, i mean there are several other ways plural, plural ways of studying economics apart from neoclassical economics but unfortunately non humans don't uh, factor in there so so i think this this idea is very important uh, whether it will uh, whether it will get traction or how much traction it will get is something that um, we we will see but we should be optimistic about we sh- because we are the ones who should be trying to push towards that yeah. idea and and as you say you know it's frustrating that there's so much open space but that's a great opportunity for people like you and nicola and others who are you know willing to be bold and to go and shape it so i'm i'm so grateful that you're a, you know even if you don't think it's completely rational you're choosing to be optimistic and choosing to work on these deep yeah. problems yeah yeah and i'm not even thinking that i would be visibly seeing all these changes happening around me right that's not that's not 
are always going to happen it's it's just that you are building a groundwork for others to sort of carry it forward when they are sensitized towards certain things that i think they should be yeah yeah i agree and laying that groundwork and then the ripples flow out and um, yeah. sometimes That's you can the be expectation yeah and sometimes you can it always feels too slow but normally you can end up being surprised by how quickly change can happen so you know whether we're optimistic or pessimistic doesn't really matter as long as we keep working so <laughs> <laughs> yeah right well, so well that's think... been that's been an absolutely fascinating conversation thank you so much is there anything else you'd like to add in before i let you get back to your students so i think i'm hoping that uh some of these ideas to diffuse as much as they can through this medium and um what what i can think of is that uh probably uh i i'm looking forward to uh develop some research on the ideas that we have talked uh through this conversation so i'm looking forward to that uh and i hope this conversation uh becomes helpful to some people who have not thought about the things that we we have talked uh today uh maybe they get a chance to sort of understand the questions that come up from the global south uh or india as such the complexities that that arise from here so i think uh, that would be nice i'm sure it will to, for everybody who listens yeah thank you so much and it's great to have you on our sentientism facebook group too i'm sure people will share feedback on this episode there and we look yeah. forward to your future research too so what's the best way of people uh, reading your work following what you're up to uh social media websites i can include links in the show notes of course but where would you point people so uh i have recently started using uh, a twitter as a medium where i could uh you know start um, expressing what i have to express so i had a twitter account a long back but i wasn't using it a lot so now i am trying to uh, use twitter uh, as a platform where i could share some of my work or share other people's work in the areas that i am interested in so great Maybe we'll I share can, that yeah 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 that's great well thank you it's been such a pleasure speaking to you it's yeah. really enriched my understanding of some of the uh challenges uh, you're facing and it's wonderful to have you working on them yeah. and i just like yeah. to uh, apologize on behalf of luna the sentient being behind me for barking for most of the okay. back, most okay. of the way through through our conversation <laughs> hopefully it wasn't too much of a distraction no cool. well, thank you so much please stay in touch like i said it's great to yeah. have you in our yeah. online we'll, forums and i'll speak to you we'll, soon yeah we'll continue to be in touch and uh, and um, keep a track on the developments that are happening around us so i'll we'll keep keep each other updated wonderful wonderful please do great thanks again take care okay okay jamie it was great talking to you thanks for listening you're helping to normalize rational compassionate thinking don't forget to subscribe leave us some stars or a review You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?